0: Welcome to London Calling EU, a podcast from the EU delegation here in the UK. Last time we looked at how Europeans changed the Premier League, but today we're going to focus on a slightly more serious topic, to some people, uh, the EU and the UK's plans to regulate online content. This is Rory Kathleen jones I'm a journalist and broadcaster who's spent more than 30 years covering business and technology. As a starter, let me introduce our guests for today. From Brussels, Werner Steng is from the cabinet of the EU Competition Commissioner and Executive Vice President Margrethe Vestager, and he leads on the Digital Services Act, which we'll hear lots about in the next half hour. Darren Jones is a Labour MP here in London who chairs the House of Commons Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee, playing a key role in scrutinising the UK government's wide-ranging plans to regulate the tech giants. And Lulu Fremont is head of digital regulation at Tech UK, a trade body representing the technology industries. Welcome all. So first, let's get the context for our discussion. Let's listen to one of the key players in digital regulation. It's a wrap. We have the political agreement on the Digital Services Act. I have learned so much these two years. And the agreement tonight is better than the proposal that we tabled. And what we have achieved is that it's not a slogan anymore that what is illegal offline should also be seen and dealt with as illegal online. No, now it is a real thing. Democracy is back, helping us to get our rights and to feel safe when we are online. That was Margareta Vestager in the early hours of April the 23rd, celebrating an agreement on the Digital Services Act after nearly 16 hours of non-stop negotiation. Don't you love those late nights in Brussels? I'd like to start with Werner Steng, who was heavily involved in those negotiations. Werner, obviously a big moment for you and your colleagues, but first of all, just remind us what the Digital Services Act is about. Give us the elevator pitch.
1: Yes, uh, with pleasure. it's not just 16 hours of negotiations it was probably more than 10 years of preparations if you want in different stages it is really about online services to act more responsibly if you want and as such by the way uh, a little teaser it's already broader in scope than than the uk law because it, it concerns any type of illegal content or activity could be products could be services could be information whatever it is so the whole digital services act should make digital service providers uh, act more responsibly to protect users against anything that is illegal, while at the same time upholding our fundamental rights and freedom of expression in in general.
0: So everything from threats to kill to fraud to what, misinformation?
1: Yes and no. Uh, The starting point really is anything illegal, which By the way, the Digital Service Act itself does not define, right? This is not content regulation. This is about due process by those that sort of manage content for us. Illegal would extend to products, for instance. If a product is placed on on the European market from China, say, and does not meet our, our product safety requirements, that would also be illegal content to be removed by the platforms. This information is different because it is not necessarily illegal in nature. And we would of course not legally require a company to remove something that is not in itself illegal. But for the very large platforms, we have introduced also risk management and mitigation obligations as regards disinformation and other harmful content.
0: And that point about legal versus just harmful is gonna be key later on when we discuss what's happening in the UK. Then, just finally for, for the moment, can you describe what it was like that night when this was agreed? What huge challenges did you feel you'd overcome? Did everybody in that room feel they'd overcome uh, over the
1: years? Yes, I suggested the sixteen hours were the easiest part of the whole journey, which is not always the case in negotiations. Sometimes the mo- the most difficult things are left for the end. Not not so much this time, because the big change compared to ten years ago, five years ago, was a common understanding in the room. And when I see room, I mean European Commission, the the member states. Uh, as much as the European Parliament, that everybody was aligned to the main purpose, if you want. That we need to do this, uh, the general parameters have long been agreed upon, it was really only details to be sorted out. I mean, years back, if you know, we were still having discussions on copyright, uh, which sort of were super divisive, and you were in favour or against, and you were for the right holders, or you were the platforms, or civil society, or whoever, But it was was a very, very tense debate. Here, everybody agreed that we needed a new framework in place. We need democratic, legitimized rules to govern the internet as we know it today. The rest was just details, frankly.
0: Lulu Fremont from Tech UK. What has been the reaction to this huge piece of legislation in, in the tech world in particular?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting question. I think widely accepted, uh, Tech UK. we have 850 members, mainly those which are operating in the UK, but of course, tech companies operate in, in multiple different regions, including across the EU. And I think that we are pleased to have something. We're pleased that we've sort of moved forward to a point where we have some quite clear guidelines for tech companies to follow. Our focus is really on the workability and it's going to be very interesting as this regime develops and as we look across to the UK's online safety bill to see how they are going to coordinate. And that is one of the main questions on the mind of our members. Is
0: Werner right in saying there wasn't that degree of hostility and division that accompanied the whole debate about copyright, for example?
2: I think there definitely was the level of, of hostility and division. There's multiple different stakeholders that have different perspectives on this. But I think if we're really sort of looking forward, we fundamentally agree with the objectives of the DSA and and similarly the online safety bill. So it's really now getting into the implementation stage to see how these changes uh, are going to happen and to see how they are going to be effective. And one of the real strengths of the DSA is it does provide levels of clarity around types of content in scope and some of the processes.
0: Now, you've mentioned the online safety bill. Here in the UK, that's another monumental piece of legislation aimed at curbing the power of the tech giants. It's making its way through Parliament. Let's listen to another clip.
2: You know, we shouldn't be having to do this. The moral responsibility for those organisations is to provide the protections that young people require. It's their responsibility to ensure that what is illegal is no longer legal or placed online, that they remove content which is legal but harmful, but most of all that they protect young people and children. And, and this bill coming forward will have those three considerations at the heart of the bill. And But, you know, they could be doing what they need to do right now. They don't need the bill. They could remove those harmful algorithms right now.
0: Culture Secretary Nadine Doris talking about the online safety bill aimed at regulating content distributed by the giant tech platforms. It will give major new powers to the media and telecoms regulator Ofcom. Uh, Darren Jones, chairing the committee, which will examine this. You've taken a great interest, I know, over the years in the regulation. Explain to us in 30 seconds, key task, what will change under the online safety bill? Well, the key issue with the Online Safety Bill is
3: it's trying to make platforms build systems and processes that reduce the presentation of harmful content and illegal content to individuals, and in particular, children. As you mentioned, Rory, I sat on the Joint Committee, which scrutinised the legislation and provided a list of recommendations for its reform. It's actually ended up becoming more complicated, whereas we said it should be simplified. And so we're going to need to see what happens to it as it goes through
0: both houses now in Parliament in this new session. Lots of things keep being added to it, don't they? I've seen so many lobbying groups from all sorts of interests saying, we want more this, we want more that.
3: Yes. And on the committee, we felt that the government should focus on making what is illegal offline, illegal online, and ensure that's enforced in an appropriate way. We thought they should do that first before trying to do lots of other things. But the government didn't take the green card that we presented to them and have decided instead to add in lots of additions, but without really structured definitions in a way that can give industry and others the clarity about what they might need to do in certain circumstances. And it is
0: already proving controversial, isn't it, right across the political spectrum. And am I right in saying the controversy centres on this idea that material that is not illegal but is deemed harmful could land the tech giants in hot water facing giant fines?
3: Yeah, this was one of the really difficult issues for us to try to grapple with in Parliament alongside impinging on freedom of speech and expression. uh, It's very easy to be able to define what is illegal uh, and we felt there were some updates required but the government could do that without much difficulty. Uh, We actually ended up recommending that they took out altogether at this stage the concept of legal but harmful and that was a difficult decision because we recognise that for many people there is harmful content that can lead to really significant consequences in the real world But equally, we felt that the level of definition in the bill as it stands was not strong enough. And it actually put a lot of the responsibility in the hands of the tech companies themselves to decide what they felt was potentially harmful, albeit with oversight from a strategic regulator such as Ofcom. We're concerned that's not going to be operationally very effective and open to
0: lots of legal challenges in the courts. Lulu Fremont from Tech UK. How does the online safety bill compare with Europe's DSA?
2: I think at a very high level, they are at slightly different stages. And I think that with the DSA, we have some sort of finalized text, uh, the focus on illegal content activity, sort of anything that is illegal is is very much welcome. It's sort of what we were pushing for the online safety bill to do uh, throughout the past few years as it has been developing. I think the approach of the online safety bill is also slightly distinct from the DSA. It's relying on systems and processes. It's regulating 25,000 services that sort of host or or allow user-generated content or search services. And it is really stretching to that question around how do we define that lawful gray area content and how are platforms and tech services going to have the certainty That they are actually removing illegal but harmful content but they are allowing free speech to actually stay up on their services uh you know as darren is saying having clear definitions would be extremely helpful for tech services to be able to know that they are making the right decisions around the removal of content and ultimately placing the onus on on the companies to decide it it really does give risk to have very unequal standards Uh, And a real inconsistent application across the sector of what is and what is not allowed online. And that is not potentially the the best route for us to go down when trying to also protect free speech and and equality around that.
0: Now, it's often painted all of this kind of legislation as being aimed at a few giant, mainly Californian companies. Your organisation represents a lot of smaller British tech companies. Can they be relaxed about this thinking we're not really uh, in the crosshairs here or should they be worried
2: it's a really good question and i you know the smaller businesses are the ones that we're really trying to look out for here because those are the ones where they're not going to have compliance teams they're not going to have the same levels of resource and they're not going to have the same levels of of legal counsel even throughout this process to be able to evaluate what this regime means in practice so much of our role is to try and bridge that gap and ensure that that companies do understand their obligations and that they are sort of going to have a regime that is proportionate both to the levels of risk, but also to their size and their capacity. There is a real uh, sort of concern that for a a company operating in, in multiple different markets, you could still be a small business, but you could be a global business And if you are in a situation where you have the Digital Services Act, which is sort of sending you in one direction, the online safety bill in another direction, you just might not have the the capabilities or resource to comply with both. So that is a genuine concern of, of some of our smaller businesses also some of the provisions around senior management liability uh you know we hear the whole time from smaller businesses this does have a real chilling impact on investment and innovation we can understand the necessity for the regulators to do that job but as soon as it gets extended to types of content or types of activity taking place and the liability changes that is a real concern so we want to make sure we're not sort of pushing smaller businesses out of the market that we are having a regime that supports fair competition and that aligns with the range of other regulatory initiatives taking place in the UK and across regions.
0: Darren, good point to bring you in here. I mean, this is all about content. What we've been talking about both in uh, the EU and the UK is about content. There's other regulatory action planned in the UK, which is about competition. And that seems to be on hold. Is that fair or is that going to go ahead? Well, the good
3: news is that a bill was announced in the Queen's speech that would look at digital markets, competition and consumer law changes, even though it had been listed as being a bill that had been dropped only last week. So as the chair of the committee responsible for scrutinising that bill, I welcome the fact the government has tabled it. We've still got to see the detail. But the UK has an opportunity here to really understand how it fits between the EU and the US in terms of the global regulatory landscape for action in digital markets. And the Competition and Markets Authority has already been leading that debate, I think, uh, pretty well, uh, including whilst the UK was chair of the G7. And I hope that the legislation, when it is presented, will give the Competition and Markets Authority the powers and the resources to be able to do more work in this area.
0: Well, let's explore one important theme in all this, free speech and how it should be protected. Werner, how does the DSA protect free speech? Who takes, for instance, the final call on whether a controversial post should be removed or not?
1: Well, I guess the final call will always be on courts, actually, because a bit like, not just like the UK bill, we are also focusing on systems and processes, if you want, right? It is not about each individual uh, item of information, content, free speech that we regulate upon, but we regulate the systems that platforms need to put in place in order to protect free speech. Um, If things then still go wrong and people feel that their content was was unlawfully removed and in spite of all the checks and balances that we have in the DSA, the platform is unwilling to re-upload, what have you, uh, you can always go to court. But still, in the DSA, I think we're starting from already the terms of service of platforms. We are, of course, not telling a platform what content it should or should not host. That is still of obviously their own decision. But they need to be very clear upfront of any restrictions that they may impose on their services that when doing so they need to be taking due account of, of the Charter of Fundamental Rights, that they have to apply those Terms of Service in a non-discriminatory manner, and so on and so forth. Then individually, if my content now were to be removed, I need to be informed instantly, I need to be given the chance to challenge any such decision, so it's a complaint handling mechanism or a counter-notice system if you want. Then there is, of course, the more global transparency obligations for content moderation systems at large, that we uh, as a society, as as regulators, supervisors, we better understand how those content moderation systems work, also in terms of more general outcomes, not just individual-based outcomes, if you want. And then last but not least, if I may, there is still sort of this increased access to such data by the research community because we wanted to crowdsource a bit what is happening at the moment only within outside of the social media platforms. It's not the supervisors like you and us who will be able to challenge the platforms all the time, but we want the broader research community to help us see what is happening in terms of content that is so important to all of us. But are
0: the tech companies, big and possibly small, going to have to develop hugely complex systems and processes to decide which content they need to remove?
1: Well, first of all, there is a difference between small and large. So the obligations are, as, as was just discussed before, they are tailored to this to the size and risk profile of different players or, or different economic actors, if you want. Then there is some very standardized processes, if you want, that the kind of notice and action, notice and takedown mechanisms. They can be pretty much harmonized if you want. When it comes to the larger platforms, which we consider obviously systemically more relevant to freedom of expression and anything else, they will have to put in place more complicated probably systems, because also the the risks that they may be posing to, to society are also bigger. But this is also where greater flexibility comes in, because all the risk management, risk mitigation framework, is obviously meant to be flexible, to be adapted to different business models, technologies, issues popping up, also to ensure that the whole thing remains uh, as technologically neutral as it possibly can.
0: Darren, as far as I can see with this bill, Ofcom is going to have huge powers taking decisions on what's acceptable online. Isn't there a fear that they might do this on behalf of a government which had a certain view? I mean, we've already seen in a way which was widely accepted government wanting to get rid of, for instance, misinformation during the pandemic. And some people felt they were silenced then. Isn't isn't there going to be a huge row over the, the might of Ofcom and, and how it wields it? Yes. And one of the problems from the legislative perspective
3: is that Ofcom has to draw up a high number of codes of practice that provides a lot of detail to accompany the draft bill. And I and others have called on ministers to require Ofcom to publish those drafts before we pass the bill to become law. Because without it, in my view, you can't really understand how the regulator envisages to use the powers that is being given by parliament, which I think is a problem. There is this also this issue of the power for politicians to intervene in an independent regulator. Originally, the proposal was that the Secretary of State could tell Ofcom uh, that there was what they call priority content that needed dealing with in line with government policy, uh, which obviously could be misused irrespective of who the Secretary of State is or which party it is. Uh, They've slightly amended that off the back of our recommendations on the Joint Committee to include parliamentary
0: oversight. But I think that still
3: needs to be toughened up uh, for it to be acceptable.
0: Lulu Freeman, is is there a danger that companies will take a safety first attitude here? They'll have heard about the huge fines, uh, the, the threat to individual executives, and they'll say, well, better safe than sorry, we'll just take down a whole load of stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the biggest risks of an unclear regime. And that's not to say that this is the only outcome but as it currently stands without clear definitions of of what is considered harmful content towards adults or what might constitute harm, it is very difficult for for companies to to actually decide on that themselves accurately. And as you say, coupled with sanctions, senior management liability, and a general sort of feeling that this regime is actually safety first, then this will result in, in sort of over removal of legitimate content, which then places the companies in a tricky position where they might have their users uh, complaining to them about sort of free speech violations. So it's that definitional point is fundamental for companies to be able to understand what their obligations are. And from our perspective, that's probably one of the biggest gaps in the online safety bill as it is currently drafted.
0: There's a danger with all regulation, isn't there, that it actually reinforces the position of the giant companies that can afford to pay, for instance, for hundreds, thousands of moderators and makes the punchy little innovator, well, sends them bust.
2: Yeah, entirely. And I think, you know, there are some provisions within the bill which might be more written to be aligned with the capabilities of larger businesses. I think One of the the really interesting uh, topics which we're exploring is around general monitoring. And there is a real risk that the online safety bill is going to require de facto general monitoring for larger and smaller players for them to feel you know this is the safest route to compliance so just for context general monitoring is prohibited in the EU under article 15 of the e-commerce directive this obviously does not need to be transpired in the UK post-Brexit and the online safety bill is showing a sort of drifting away from this norm that companies should not actually monitor every piece of content and for smaller businesses, they might really struggle to absorb the the cost of this, of actually implementing this general monitoring. It would require both technology, human oversight, and it might just make the UK a bit of a, a less attractive place for tech growth and investment, uh, especially when we look across to the EU where there are very strict intermediary liability protections, which are, you know, at the cornerstone of sort of a fair, free and open internet.
0: Well, let's just move on finally, to the question of enforcement and the question of the balance of power between governments and these extraordinary tech giants. According to Commissioner Breton, the uh, the European Commission is planning to hire only 150 staff to monitor whether large companies violate those EU content rules. Is that really enough to compete against big tech giants? Let's hear first from one of our better known tech tycoons.
1: Well, I think it's very important for uh, there will
3: be an inclusive arena for free speech, uh, where all, yeah, so, uh, yeah. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. It's just really important that people have both the reality and the perception that they're able to speak freely within the bounds of the law.
0: Now, that's Elon Musk discussing how things will change once he owns Twitter. That, that uh, bombshell that we've been discussing in recent weeks, uh, one of the most important social media platforms coming under the control of the world's wealthiest man. So what does that saga tell us about the balance of power between big tech and big government? Werner Steng, uh, I think we've seen a bit of a rapprochement in recent days between Thierry Breton and Elon Musk, signs that war might not be breaking out. Is that the case?
1: I wouldn't know that, but I also don't even know whether this is so relevant. It's also not so relevant who owns this company, frankly speaking. But it is a good argument in favor of having something like the Digital Service Act in the the first place. We had similar discussions, by the way, uh, when Trump was kicked out of Twitter uh, after the Capitol events and so on, uh, because both events just show the societal importance that those companies play Uh, and that in itself requires something like the Digital Service Act. It's probably one of the main drivers behind the Digital Service Act in the first place. Or as my boss, the executive vice president would always say, that democracy is coming back with a vengeance. Because if there is private companies uh, that really decide on who sees what and why and when or not, I mean, that is something that requires that requires regulation and, and oversight and transparency. And this is what the DSA will do, no matter who owns Twitter. If Twitter, and they, I'm sure they will want to operate in Europe, uh, won't want to do so, they need to live up to rules of the Digital Services Act. So probably that just shows how important that legal act is in the first place. Darren
0: Jones, uh, in a way, you can see Elon Musk is saying he'll he'll allow anything that's within the bounds of the law. That kind of works with the DSA. It may not work with an online safety bill, which goes beyond the law, mightn't it? May we see Britain's Culture Secretary, uh, Nadine Dorris, in conflict with the world's wealthiest man, Elon Musk? Well, very potentially. I mean, the online
3: safety bill, when it's passed, will in itself be law. And so, Twitter will have to comply with it, irrespective of who the owner is. And of course, the Secretary of State has made it clear that they intend to bring forward criminal sanctions sooner than they had planned. And so there will be individual criminal liability for any company directors who block the work of Ofcom, the regulator, to ensure that the law is being enforced. Now, how effective those will be in practice, we will need to see. But it does show the level of intent of ministers here in uh, London to ensure that companies comply with the law.
0: We've seen time and again in, in the last five years, both in the UK and in the EU, threats to curb the power Of those Californian tech giants. Is it really going to happen? I mean, we saw, for instance, Mark Zuckerberg refusing to come before the UK's House of Commons Select Committee. will not they be a bit cynical about the power of the UK or even the European Commission? Well, I mean, there's one thing refusing
3: to come before a select committee. And as a select committee chair, clearly, uh, I suggest that is not the right thing to do. But there's another thing breaking the law, both in terms of civil and criminal consequences in the UK, not least because our influence internationally is still relevant. So even though you might break uh, domestic legislation in the UK, uh, the enforcement action that we might take, the kind of precedent we might be able to establish through enforcement action uh, could then be used to underpin actions in other countries that are developing similar legislation, whether that's in the EU or in the um, or in some states in the United, uh, in the United States. So uh, these companies will comply with the law, they're going to have to do that and all of them um, irrespective of their founders or owners as big companies will be required to do that in the way that every other company is so i I suspect they'll just have
0: to get on with it lulu fremont what's your take then on this extraordinary potential clash between the the wealthiest man in tech elon musk often compared to iron man and and the regulators Uh, will the tech industry secretly be cheering him on or or will some be hoping he comes a cropper
2: Well, uh, very sorry to disappoint, but I won't be commenting on the uh, individual Tech UK membership, their structures uh, with management. But I think we do need to be quite careful when we think about criminal sanctions and senior management liability and the implications that, that that will have on thousands of different tech companies and how the very existence of these types of provisions could have a real chilling and negative impact on smaller businesses. They may feel that they need to act in a certain way to ensure that they are not going to be in a situation where there is even a chance that their boss might be criminalized as a result of the regime. And that could really come with tension with freedom of speech and really sort of challenge uh, some of the objectives of the bill. So, you know, I can see the political drive, but we need to think about the realities for for 25,000 services in scope of this regime.
0: Well, a lot to play for here. Huge egos at stake. Lots of power plays from California, from Brussels, from London. It'd be fascinating to see how it all plays out. Thank you to all of my guests Werner Steng from Margareta Vestager's cabinet in Brussels, the chair of the Commons Business Select Committee, Darren Jones, and Lulu Fremont from Tech UK. Stay tuned for the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to London Calling EU, wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye mm